welcome to episode 21 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in this episode, we'll be talking about child narrators versus adult narrators. And in the second half, we'll be tackling the potentially enormous topic of Shakespeare's <laughs> comedies versus Shakespeare's tragedies. Um, before we launch ourselves into those, uh, Rachel, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I've had a busy couple of days as my brother got married at the weekend, which is very nice. Oh, lovely. Um, and I've been busy reading my way through the Cazalet Chronicles, which I've blogged about this week. And I don't think, have you read them? Elizabeth Jane Howard novels. We, um, I think we talked yes. about them on the last episode, didn't we? Um, you need to read them, I'm telling you this now. I'm, I'm halfway through the second one, and I mean, it's addictive. And I think last time I said I wasn't sure whether my friend Lorna had or had not read them, and she has emailed me to confirm that she not only has, but also um, deeply loves them. I think she said she read them twice, and that I must read them. So between the two of you, yeah, you'll persuade me. I think <laughs> it would be perfect for the summer, you know? If you're going on holiday, you could take all of them on your Kindle. <laughs> there you go. How well you know me. Yeah. <laughs> my Kindle that never leaves my side. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what you're reading. Um, how's the second one comparing to the first one? Well, do you know, rarely they're of an equal quality. Hmm. Yeah, and it's great because it's just like falling back in with some old friends. It's wonderful, and it's because it's it's literally. So the last one was 1938, and now we've just skipped ahead a year. So it's kind of, you know, I feel like I've just picked up where I've left off. Spoilers, there could be something bad about to happen in 1939. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, some bad stuff's about to go down. <laughs> so, you know, it's wonderful. And I think I, I was reading an interview with Elizabeth Jane Howard um, online last night, and she said, you know, she specifically wrote this chronicle because she wanted to... She said so many books are written about the war, the war period, and it's all about, you know, all the world events and everything. She said no one's really talked about domestic life during the war, um, which I don't think is necessarily... No, absolutely not the case, but sure. <laughs> I think when she was writing in the sort of 90s, 80s and 90s, I think um, perhaps that kind of revisionist writing hadn't come back in yet. So um, she wanted to write something like the war's in the background, but it's no one's, it's not like the predominant feature of the plot which I which I quite like that is nice yeah yeah so I definitely think you'd love it and I will well I've just started doing book bingo again I think I maybe said this last time and one of them is book in a series so that would work perfectly for that yeah um what about you what's going on on your end um what is going on well not a huge amount but um the book I'm reading well I this isn't a political podcast and I won't make it that, but I was feeling a bit glum and dispirited about the world yes. after the referendum results. So I thought I needed something light and cheerful um, to cheer me up. And I turned to a book called I Am Sylvia by Sandy Wilson, which is the fake showbiz memoir of a cat. <laughs> <laughs> um, turns out it's not very good. <laughs> Shocker. I know, couldn't have seen it coming. So it's not, so it's not about like a, an, a, a, how the role a cat might play in Hollywood. Essentially, it's just as though cats were people. So it's the memoir of an actress, and she happens to be a cat. 
Um, very dodgy. It's quite boring, to be honest. But it, what it certainly is is light. Um, so it's at least fulfilling that function. And it's got a great cover. It's sort of bright green, and it's got this huge cat wearing a big bonnet on the front. So you can't be uncheerful whilst holding that in your hand. No, that's true. But coming up next, my book group's doing *The Old Wives' Tale* by Arnold Bennett. So I've not read any novels by Arnold Bennett before. No, I haven't. Um, although I did, did just read his book *Literary Taste and How to Form It* um, from the I think from the 1909 maybe. Um, but basically, he talks about how great literature is, and then gives a list of um, 300 odd books that you have to read if you're going to become well read, starting you know in the well, around Shakespeare, I think, maybe even earlier, and then on to what was then present day. Um, I don't like lists like that. It's it, it at the end of them he says if you once you've read at least half of these, then you can start to consider yourself well read. And I'm going through thinking, well, I've probably read about four of them. So I don't know if that counts. Um, but he's also costed them all out in shillings and, and pence to, to say that it will cost me no more than £15 to buy all of the great literature of the past hundred years or something. Not sure that's still true. Well, unless you get them for free on a Kindle, I suppose. <laughs> You've got some sort of um, vendetta against us non-Kindle users today, Rachel. What's happening? Well, you know, I just think it's very useful for the summer. <laughs> for the summer. You make it sound like an accessory. Yeah. <laughs> Put your sunglasses on <laughs> and hold your Kindle under your arm. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a catechism cover for your Kindle? No, Simon. No, I do not. <laughs> um, but I, I, well, actually, I've, I've bought myself a load of books for the summer today, but they're all hardbacks and I didn't really think that through. Oh, you fool. Um, yeah, I know. I ordered them all on Amazon today and then thought, ah. Oh, I'm going to have to carry those around with me, but never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Are you coming towards the end of term? Yes, we break up on Friday, so two days' time. Oh, lovely. I cannot wait. I mean, I love the children, but I'm very much looking forward to a break from them. And a break from having to think all day, which, you know, I'm really struggling with at the moment because I have awful hay fever, which makes me feel like I've been hit around the head. So... It's um yeah, not, not going well. It's not proving to be a great summer for me so far. I mean, we're out of the Euro Cup football-wise. I can't breathe. And, you know, <laughs> half of my country has decided to divorce me from the European Union. So, you know. I hope that's not the order of, of or is it escalating order of calamity? Escalating <laughs> order of calamity. <laughs> Football being right at the bottom, followed by hay fever, followed by, you know, terribleness. Yes, at the time of... um. Of recording the football was yesterday, and I was busy making a carrot cake instead. So that's what I can well, recommend as an alternative. I was watching it. Can I say I was not? I was just it, I was on the computer and heard it in the background. <laughs> I was invited to go out to to watch it and just burst out laughing because obviously not. <laughs> well, my flatmate said, "Oh, it'll be it'll be fun because we'll easily win." And then you know, obviously, that didn't happen. Much like me saying to everyone, don't worry about the referendum. No one will vote leave. I know. know. Well, I'm proud and pleased to say that Oxford was 70% remain. So well done, Oxford. So was Tower Hamlets. So thank you, local Londoners. Um, But we'll move on from this, shall we? Let's. Let's move on to the topic that Rachel has um, chosen. (laughs) (laughs) Now, dear listeners, it would be a lie to say that Rachel gave me much time to prepare with this topic. (laughs) Um, or indeed, had any clue how the podcast worked. But <laughs> but here we are, we've got it, and it's a good one. In fact, I have an inkling that someone else suggested this, um, on this, and I put it onto the spreadsheet we now have. So, um, if someone else already mentioned it, 
Your name will be down below in the notes, but I can't find it right now. So thanks, maybe you, or thanks, Rachel, or thanks both. <laughs> I feel like I had an original idea, but, you know. It's possible, not. isn't it? Stranger things have happened. So uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> why don't you kick us off? Well, um... Oh, we should probably restate what, what the idea actually is. <laughs> no, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, I thought this would be an interesting topic because... I actually find child narrators interesting, but also problematic. And I thought it would be fun to talk about different types of books that we've read with child narrators in and then compare and think, you know, would would they be substantially different if they were adult narrators? Hmm. Um, so, I mean, something I'm going to just bring this up and see what you think. Something that I find problematic with child narrators is often they're very unconvincing in terms of the vocabulary they use and um, the insights that they make. I think it's very difficult to do this kind of faux-naive voice mm -hmm. without it being very knowing at the same time. So something I've always found quite difficult, for example, with um, To Kill a Mockingbird, is it's told through this childlike voice of, of Scout, but at the same time it's the adult version of Scout who's telling the story. So the narration just feels very off to me. That's interesting. I, I think I find it um, certainly unconvincing if it's, or often unconvincing if it's uh, writing a child narrator who's alive when I was a child or, you know, during my lifetime, because I know how children spoke when I was a child. And I don't know, I just, I just I'm more tuned to the different tones and, you know, when it's like when someone's parents start saying, you know, funky or something, it all just sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I I maybe notice it less when I'm looking at older fiction because I'm not as aware what what was you know on brand for a child to say and what wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so something like *To Kill a Mockingbird*, I felt I I felt it worked maybe partly partly because it acknowledged that it was the old scout looking back as well, so it wasn't just pretending that that it was just a child. You sort of had the mix of the two there, I guess. Yeah. See what I mean? Um, something like David Copperfield, for example, told from the perspective of a child again, you know, is it a convincing voice of a child? Not quite sure. Um, and I think also um, there is also a risk when you're doing a child narrator, if you really want to do it convincingly, you have to tell a very simplified story through, you know, very simple vocabulary very simple observations. I think it is possible to do it quite cleverly because obviously what a child is seeing and what their child is talking about, they're obviously missing the bigger picture and you get to, as a reader, be more actively involved because you're you're having to read between the lines and, and work out things that the child isn't able to explain or express properly. Um, and the book Room, I don't know if you read it. I haven't. I was going to bring it up because that, that does that. Um, yeah, and I think that I I did read some of that, and I did think it was um it was very good. Um, but the thing is, I can't really remember what it was like to be that young, and I think it's it's quite difficult when because the narrator in that is five or six ish, I think, and that and uh, that extremity of youth I find troubling as well because I can't remember what it, I was like at five. I don't know whether it's convincing or not. I can't tell, um, and I actually get quite annoyed after a while with listening to a voice like that, because I'm like, oh, for goodness sake, you know. Um, yeah, that's true. I, I guess I was thinking of teen narrators in terms of what feels um, comfortable. But when it's going really young, it does feel 
Um, I'm trying to think if I've even read any examples. I'm sure I have. I can't think of any right now. But there it feels more like, as you say, a technique where they have to be cautious with what they reveal. Um, or not even cautious, but like it, it gives them the ability to not reveal everything because a child yeah. wouldn't understand it. Um, where it's maybe not so much important that they sound realistic to any particular period. But I guess it, they have more, more freedom there because children develop much the same way yeah. forever. Um, so that would feel less cringy to me, but at the same time, yeah, the tolerance for that might might weigh. Well, it's not a good example because it's not a novel, but um, I remember reading Emma Smith's The Great Western Beach, which um, was a memoir of her childhood, um, which I really enjoyed. It was really good, but it was this weird combination of being, being in this child's voice of, you know, she'd mentioned... Well, she'd skirt around topics like sex or whatever and just, you know, but all these sort of disingenuous things about not understanding it. But at the same time, you know that she's an adult now. Yeah. Um, a novelist obviously can get away with it more. Something like, um, uh, what's it called? A Curious Incident, A Dog in Nighttime. Obviously, yeah. not the fact that he's a child isn't the only thing going on there. But, um, but I quite like, I quite like how he, Mark Haddon dealt with, um, the narrator's lack of knowledge of everything and understanding of everyone. Um, so it's it's definitely a gimmick. It's it's like I guess when we were talking about first and third person last week, it's if maybe the adult narrator is sort of the um the neutral and the child narrator is putting on this extra dimension to how the narrative is received by the reader. Yeah. Um quite a few of the books we've already talked about in previous episodes actually, child narrators, aren't they? Like um The Go Between and Catching the Rhine, I Catch the Castle. Yeah. Um Obviously, again, all a bit older children, but... No, I think for me it works better when you've got a teenage voice. Yeah, I think um, it definitely gives you more capability. I think the pro- it's not really a problem, it's just something we have to face, is that teenagers are so self-absorbed um, yeah. and often so just constantly terrified about what people think of them or, you know, like Holden Caulfield go the opposite way and pretend they don't care what anyone thinks of them. Yeah. Um, that... Books like that really work, actually. Those, like, I love Catcher in the Rye and I love um, the Dodie Smith one. Like, I Catcher the Castle. Just Maybe. <laughs> um, because they do capture that self-centeredness really well. I find it unrealistic when you've got child narrators and, and teenage narrators that notice everything. Mm, and it's mm. like, that's, being a teacher, I know that's not true. Like, teenagers notice nothing <laughs> in the world around them, unless it has a direct influence on them. They, I mean, unless you get a, quite an exceptional teenager who's very interested in the world and is very intellectual and has probably a, quite an intellectual and artistic family at home. A lot of teenagers are literally just wrapped up in their own world. And I think that books that try and use a child or a teenager to have this kind of, you know, wonder, wondering, wondering um, kind of interested view of everything, who notice everything and who have these, you know, moments of realisation. I just, the teenage mind just isn't like that. And I think that is uh, a silly way to try and get that <laughs> across in a book. I just don't think it works. That's interesting. Um not working with teenagers ever. I, was, I guess I have less of an insight into, into what they're like. Um, I was gonna, oh, yes. Yeah, so I think there's a difference between um, a child or a teen narrator in a book that's aimed at children or teens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then one that's aimed at adults. And often I think a, 
if a book's got a, a young narrator, it's just assumed to be young adult. Yeah. Um, oh, I use that awful term. Sorry. <laughs> assumed to be aimed at teenagers, but um, so and, and cinematic Adventure of the castle goes both ways. I think it, you know, it's often read by teenagers, but it doesn't alienate adults. But um, maybe it's more of a default for a teen to, book to be narrated by a teen, whereas it seems to be something quite deliberate when when an adult chooses to do that. Um, and, it, and then it can go in one or two ways of either just being showing how they see the world or, I guess, showing the reader more about the character by what they what they choose to put down and what they choose or, or what they observe. One those, yeah. Like we were talking last time, how there's sort of yeah, a dual narrative going on if, if you've got yeah, the narrator saying one thing and we're supposed to be sort of maybe laughing at them, maybe wryly smiling at them or something because we see, we also see what's going on outside of that. Yes. And I think, you know, it's often you've got the child or the young adult narrator because it is a building's roman and you're kind of seeing them grow up and change and it's often loss of innocence, those sorts of, of novels that are, have a teenager or a child narrator but are aimed at adults. The, the theme that you're you're watching them grow up and you're seeing them realise the world around them and have their um, preconceptions about the world taken down by some dramatic event or whatever. You know, that's certainly the case in The Go-Between or um, to some extent in I Capture the Castle, uh, perhaps yeah. also in one of your favourites, Guard Your Daughters. Well, quite, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think there's also an interesting one where you've got the difference between the novels that are always written in a teenage voice the whole way through, so that 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 narrator both starts a teenager and, and finishes a teenager, or starts a child and finishes a child, and then you've also got the novels that are memoirs of a time in childhood, but very much told by an adult who's looking back. Mm-hmm. And and that those novels are, I think, entirely different because they're not really told in the voice of the teenager, because it's the adult's perception of what their teenage self saw. I think that's happened in Atonement, isn't it? In yeah. Um And I quite, I do quite like novels which have the whole "if I'd known then what I know now" aspect to it, but it has to be done well. I can remember reading, um, I think it was Five Quarters of the Orange by Joanne Harris that uh, had, or Joanna Harris, whatever it is, um, had lots of um, almost every paragraph seemed to end with some variant on "if I'd known then what I know now." And like, like, we get it, you know more now. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a guess point where it's no longer building tension and giving interesting insights to the narrative technique and just being like, I'm going to keep reading the book. You don't have to <laughs> keep pretending there's something exciting coming in the next chapter. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you ever read The Lovely Bones? Yes, do you know what? That was one I was going to mention. I completely forgot. Hmm. I think that's a really interesting narrative voice. I did really enjoy that book and it made me cry so much. So for those who don't know, it's narrated by um, a girl whose name I can't remember, obviously. But um, she is speaking from the afterlife because she has been raped and murdered. That's not a spoiler, is it? That comes out quite early, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know. Um, which is obviously an unusual technique. <laughs> but um, yeah, I also, I, I quite like the naivety of her voice. I found other aspects of the novel bizarre, perhaps, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not yeah. a. I think you have to kind of take several leaps uh, <laughs> and just accept as you're reading. But I, I did think that was a really convincing narrative voice in that you kind of see the pain of the parents and you see how it affects her. But again, it's a very self centered 
narrative voice, she's upset because, you know, she doesn't like seeing her parents upset. She can't enter into her into her parents' mindset because she hasn't ever been a parent and she doesn't try to. And I think that's what's quite successful. I think when adults writing books through the eyes of children try and give them insight into things that they would not have had insight into, that's where it doesn't work. Mm. You know, my mum must be feeling this way or she must be feeling like this. It's like, no, children don't think that way. They don't ever think about other people's feelings. Um, you know, that's, that's something, I mean, they do to a certain extent, but they don't as much as an adult does. You know, their primary motivation is always themselves. And I think that that is the same for a long time, really, because they they don't have the maturity to be able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. They're able to, to kind of, I'm using this as a very general broad stroke, by the way, like, you know, obviously, individually, <laughs> but in terms of like when we're talking about novels in class, the children are able to theoretically talk about how it would feel to be somebody else or to think about that. But then practically, they can't actually practice that in their everyday life until they get to about 15, 16, I don't think. That's interesting. I guess, yes, empathy has to be developed. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it's not that they're horrible people. It's just that they don't have that maturity to think, oh, hang on a minute. If somebody did that to me, how would I feel? OK, then I won't do that. Um, it's just, yeah, it does come with time, I think. Hmm. Um, yes, um, going back to things you talked about in previous ones again, I think the, the diary novel, um, is a great way to, yeah, to do a child narrator. Um, thinking like Adrian Mole or, um, <laughs> other examples that I cannot think of now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's a great way to, um, obviously give the first person of, of, of the, uh, of the child um, or teen, but at the same time give this parallel narrative that subtly, sort of, you know, I mean, when you're reading Adrian Moore, you can see how everyone's seeing him, which obviously isn't how he sees himself or how, or how he thinks he's being seen. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, I think that's unrealistic. Actually, one of the kids at my school's reading that at the moment, but they were like, they keep asking me what words mean, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that they shouldn't probably know. And I'm like, oh, well, that means this. Um, and again, I, I think that's unrealistic because it's like the diary of thirteen year old. No thirteen year old is going to sit down and spend the time to write in so much detail about their everyday life. Like it just doesn't happen. Um, and again, I find like obviously I'd read it and accept it, and it wouldn't be a problem. But I think those kind of I think that's the problem for me with a lot of adults writing through the voice of children. I think sometimes they're so separated from what it was like to be a child that they can no longer put themselves in their position. And while they may think they've written something that's very convincing, um, I think if a teenager read it, they'd be like, hang on a minute, this doesn't this doesn't ring free for me at all. It surprises me you say that about Adrian Mole, because I always thought felt that really was realistic. Um, perhaps in a pre-internet age, where the extremely self-absorbed... Yeah, I mean, um, I faux literary like, guy who the, all he had was a pen and paper, and not many friends. Perhaps he would, I don't know. Um, yeah, spend all that time. But I suppose like I don't know because I didn't read it when I was thirteen. I read it when I was older, and I think that actually like the child who was reading it in my class at the moment is almost thirteen, and they didn't understand half of what it was talking about. I mean, and and I think that's again an interesting thing. Like maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know. I think, I think I read it when I was about 15, maybe. Um, and a lot of it, I think, would only be best understood by someone who read it in the 80s. There's yeah. a lot of topical references going on. I'd like to clarify, I was not 15 in the 80s. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So yeah, who knows? I think it's definitely um, a parody, is to at least an extent. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so it's not it's, naturalistic. But... No, and it's a parody of what you remember being like as a teenager, and I think. Um, hmm. Write know, in, listeners. Text in. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, but I just think it's interesting. It's like you know our perception of what it was like to be a teenager. Because when I see the kids doing stuff, I always think, oh, I was never like that at their age. And then I think, no, well, I must have been. I just <laughs> what it was like. I, forgot, you know, I don't really. I find it really strange actually as you get older. I mean, we're not even old, but like, I can't really remember specifics anymore. Do you find that? Oh, I mean, I I can't really remember specifics of what happened this week, but in general, yeah, I just... My entire pre-18-year-old life is just one quite quick blur to me. (laughs) I certainly don't recall what it was like to feel at any particular age below that. Um, No, see, I find that that's the thing, that I find it really difficult to be able to say, oh, at 15, I would have felt like this, or at 14, I would have done this. And that's why I think it's really hard for adults to write convincingly for those for those age groups. I think it's fine if you're writing in that voice for adults, but if you're trying to write in that voice for young for for people of that age, I don't know how writers do it. I really don't, because I couldn't. Yeah, and interviews I've read with people who do do it just sort of they just quite simply seem to say, "I remember what it was like." So I guess you either do or you don't. <laughs> um, don't. I really... Yeah, and I certainly don't. <laughs> and I, I definitely would never dream of trying to write as a teenager now. I would. I would just find it embarrassing trying to get down with the kids, and they'd just be like, "No, this is no." <laughs> Um, someone who I always felt at the time when I was doing them did understand, um, at least to an extent, was Jacqueline Wilson. Oh yeah, she's great. I loved her. Well, I, always, I can't remember if we talked about her before, but um, so I, th- I think she's quite a British-centric um, author, so I'm not sure how well known she is outside of Britain, but um, all her books tend to focus on the, a particular issue um, and yeah. like the kids experiencing them. So there'll be childhood divorce, or there'll be, um, gosh, adopt a child, or there'll be um, a child dealing with a mother who's very ill, etc., etc. Um and I'm sure we're very useful to children going through those and I, experiences. And I always used to think, my life is pretty um, uncomplex. There's <laughs> not really, I can't really relate to any of these. But then thankfully, she wrote Double Act about being a twin. <laughs> and I was like, yes, here's my hook. <laughs> With you. So, there you go. Yeah, she's very good at getting into a, a child's mind, I think. But then again, I think she, well, well she must be, because I read her when I was a child and I thought it was great. Um, but then I had never experienced the things that she was writing about. So you weren't even a twin. No, I wasn't a twin. Though I very much wanted to be after reading Double Act. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Despite all their trials and tribs. Despite all their trials and tribulations, they remained mm. close, Simon. Who did? What a bug. <laughs> what a lesson to us all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's definitely. Um, I don't know how much of a pioneer she was, but but um, in terms of writing realistic children, compare her to like yeah, Ina Blyton. <laughs> them. I I really firmly hope that no children were ever like <laughs> Blyton novels. Yes, um, indeed, we talked about them. Yes, in our Ina Blyton episode back. Yeah. About a year ago, but um, it seems deeply like although having said that. I'm sure lots of people were like William Brown from the Just William books. Oh yeah. So it's not maybe not as new as I think. Although again, none of neither Richard Crompton nor Nina Blyton, I believe, did first-person 
narrators. So. Yeah. Um, so if you are just browsing in a bookshop, picture the scene, yeah. um, you're just looking along, you pick a, take a book off, you start reading the blurb, and it says, narrated by a 10-year-old on it, does that make you more or less likely to take it home, do you think? Definitely less likely. Okay. Yeah. And why is that? Because I just think, like all the things I've said, I find it unconvincing a lot of the time, and I want to read, I prefer reading novels that are from the perspective of someone who's going to see things the way that I'm seeing them, if you see what I mean. Hmm. Um, I think doing this whole effect of being a child and that faux naivety about everything, I just, I, I find it a bit grating after a while. Um, and I and I want to have, I want somebody to have an adult observation. And I think if they are making adult observations, I just think, well, then they shouldn't be thinking that because I know that 10-year-olds don't think that way or I know that 13-year-olds don't think that way. Um, so you think it's only so that's the rule. You think there's only like some very good exceptions occasionally. Yeah, I think mm. it's a very very difficult job to do well, and very. I think there are some fantastic examples that are real classics, but I think there are also a lot who are obviously using it as some kind of, you know, literary trick in a way, and I don't always think it comes off. One that I just remembered, um, one that I really did like, and I can't remember now if it's a child narrator, if, if the narrator is a child, or if it's in the third person, but there's certainly, it's mostly dialogue, so either way, it doesn't really matter, um, is Alfred and Guinevere by James Shulam. Um, I'm probably mispronouncing that, um, which is a New York Review of Books classics I read, and it's, um, it's very short, and it's basically just conversations between these siblings, and although I normally can't get my head around, um, well, but head into that sort of mindset again. This one rang so true in the way that children, I think they were all about maybe eight or nine in it. Um, the way that children will try and use words they've heard their parents use or phrases they've heard their parents use, um, putting on the sort of faux maturity and it not quite working. Yeah. He got that, he got that really well and I really enjoyed that. I'd recommend it. <laughs> I'll look into that one. Do you think that, um, you would prefer to read things from adult perspective, or yes, I think so. Um, for, again, for many of the reasons you talked other, uh, talked about, I think the d- exception for me might be if I picked something up and it said narrated by a ten-year-old and it was an older book. I think I'd find it. Um, I don't know. In my head, for some reason, I I think, oh, that sounds quite interesting. If it's a book from 1930, if it's a book from now, I think, oh, it's another one trying to be the next, you know, insert teenage author here. Yeah. Um, author of four teenagers. Um, and plus, I, I feel like young children today, like many of us, their lives are all around, you know, the internet and technology and all these sorts of things that I just don't really want to read about in a novel. Yeah, I think, again, that's something that's, that's a problem as well because when you're, I'm reading, I mean, it sounds so desperately sad. I'm only 30, but I read a lot of these things. I'm like, I don't actually understand what this is. Like, what, what is Snapchat? It's really embarrassing when I have to say to the kids, like, oh, what does this mean? And they're like, oh, I can't believe you don't know this. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> dreadful, I know I don't understand what this acronym is or, you know. And the thing is, I just, I, I don't necessarily find it interesting. I work with for, for um, if putting, well, I'm marketing the words that people put into the dictionary, like, you know, these new acronyms and new slang uses. And somehow I always seem to know what they are. And I think I must have spent too much time reading, like, about soaps online or something, because I always know. I remember when, when the new sense of ship went into the dictionary. Um, I assume you're familiar with this. 
shipping a couple. No, no, <laughs> so if you um, now if you're young, thank you. So if you um, if you say watching a soap and think, oh, I really ship Piper and Tyler because if you want them to be together, it's sort I've of a relationship. Never that. I've never had that. So that went into the dictionary a couple of years ago at work, and um, everyone else was mystified. And I, was, I toyed with like pretending, but I also didn't know and had to be like, no, I, I know precisely what this means. <laughs> <laughs> It's also a noun. You can say my favourite ship is Piper and Tyler. And shout out to anyone who watches Neighbours and knows who Piper and Tyler are. <laughs> so ship is like a couple. Well, yes. So you're yeah. So it's short for relationship, but it's right. um. I, oh, I see. Okay, right. Yeah. So you're ten, Usually they have to not be a couple yet. So you'd say my ship is these two people because I want them to get together in this ongoing awesome. TV series or something. Um, but you also ship them as a verb. I've honestly never heard anyone say that. Well, throw it into class tomorrow. You'll get their instant admiration slash probably that's old hat already and they've moved on to something else. Yeah, so no, that's the thing. The minute I get a grasp on what's good to say, they're all just like, no, no, no. That's like last month. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, that's Well, true. who'd have thought Teal Books would be the place to introduce people to youth slang? Well, there we are. I mean, we're so multicultural age, you know, we're totally in with all the different age groups. I mean, I should know all this stuff, but, you know, the thing is, most of the the chat I hear in the classroom these days is French now, so... Oh, that's a very sophisticated excuse, I like it. Yeah, I mean, I've I've lost touch with the... (laughs) Not le ship, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Right, um, well, before we turn this into a team speak podcast um, <laughs> which literally nobody is asking for <laughs> i think we've probably both nailed our colors to the mask and saying that we would pick an adult narrator yeah and we haven't really talked about adult narrators but i guess they are the default so yeah, yeah. i feel like that would be getting wading into the general yes. even for us yeah. <laughs> step too far um cool um let's move on to the second half then Shakespeare's comedies versus Shakespeare's tragedies. Um, so literary, so literary. So literary. I think it's a sharp um, change in tone. <laughs> <laughs> um, give me a, a brief account of your of your journey with Shakespeare over the years. Oh, Simon, what an interesting question. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've never, I never really loved Shakespeare at all until I started teaching it. So oh. this has been a very recent development for me I never felt the love at, at school or at university and I don't think it helped that at university I had to do all of Shakespeare's plays in one year and we had you know very brief time to discuss each one so we never really got into them um, and I never really understood necessarily all of it or got the deeper meanings in all of them and I just was like oh boring boring mm. um, but having to teach them means I obviously have to know a lot about them and I had to figure out all the language stuff and to analyze them on a really deep level um, and now I just I think that he's an absolute genius and I love like picking apart individual lines and thinking about all the different meanings and I love that it's still funny and it's still um, his characterization is so modern in the sense that all the things he says about being drunk about being like, finding people attractive and um, the kind of machinations and the scheming that people do to get what they want. I mean, it's exactly the same. Life is exactly the same in Shakespeare's plays as it is today. It's just, you know, different language used to express it. So, I mean, I'm fully sold now. I absolutely, any opportunity to 
shoehorn Shakespeare into a lesson and I'll do it. <laughs> well, I first read, my first Shakespeare was Macbeth, um, which I read in for year seven, which is age, what is it, 11, 12? Yeah, 11, yeah. Um, and that, I, I mean, I still believe that it's probably too early to do Shakespeare, considering at that point I had not read a novel. I still had never read a novel aimed at adults. I was being thrown into the work of a Renaissance playwright. It seemed a bit crazy to me. But um, by 6-4, in fact, even by year 9 or 10, I think I had started to really like Shakespeare um, and wasn't somehow put off by the fact that I similarly... Was given. I had to read all. Well, supposed to read all of Shakespeare at university, and we were given over one summer. I had to read everything by Shakespeare, everything by Chaucer, and everything by Virginia Woolf, um, and did not manage to do any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> but I did spend um, a happy month traveling around the Philippines. Um, well, not very much around. Living in Manila, reading Shakespeare's plays. The only book I took with me was the complete works of Shakespeare, <laughs> um, and so I'd sit on the back of jeepneys reading Shakespeare. It was great. How wonderfully colonial of you. Well, colonial, yes. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I, I, it was a, definitely um, I, a mix of cultures, sort of looking out and seeing the streets of Manila, um, going around slums, and I was working in slums and schools as I was there. Um, yeah, and reading Taming of the Shroom. <laughs> um, as you do. But I have it on good authority that Shakespeare is an international playwright, but um, having never seen a play by his outside of this country... I cannot attest to that. <laughs> yes, he is. I mean, certainly he's a very big deal in France, but obviously translated into French. And I have it on authority from my French colleagues that they, uh, certainly in the French translations they study there, they don't make any attempt to um, recreate the language. So it's just translated into modern French. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. I don't know what we do with, like, Molière or something here. No, I don't know. I should ask them, actually. In fact, I watched a performance of Molière today at school. Ah, there you go. In French, one assumes. I understood about half of it, but then, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. So, um, this may give a clue to comedies and tragedies, but what's your favourite Shakespeare play? Ah, well, my favourite Shakespeare play um, is definitely Macbeth. Ah. Yeah. Or the Scottish play. If you will. Yeah. Tell me more. Do you know what? I just find it absolutely fascinating and I find more in it every time I read it. And I think what um, makes me feel so intrigued by it is that it's really, the more I read it and the more I kind of, as I get older and think about it more, is the more this play is about fear of death and fear of, um, not having children and not leaving a legacy behind and um, that is something that is so timeless and I think if you get caught up in this and lots of people talk about it in terms of ambition and you know wanting power etc etc but for me it's all about fear and that is why I find it really interesting because it's about the vulnerability of humanity mm -hmm. um, and I find that really touching actually and I always find myself really kind of moved by the end um, and I just think it's a play that's all about how wrong life can go if you kind of push yourself off, go start going down a path. And I love one of my favourite lines in the play is when he says, I've, you know, waded so deep 
in blood that I can't go back now. And it's that, that he gets to that point where he's like, I've, I, I kind of regret what I've done, but I can't do anything to change it now. And it's that tragic sense of, you know, knowing what you've done and knowing there's nothing you can do about it. I just feel so sorry for him. Um, and it's, yeah, I just find it really touching. Yeah, I think, you're, um, I mean, you're, I think you're definitely right what you said earlier. And I think everyone would accept this, that Shakespeare manages to tap into those essential human emotions and they are just eternal and you know, immortal because of that. They, they may be, you know, ancient Scottish kings or whatever he's from. Obviously, he was already quite old when Shakespeare was writing about him. Yeah. <laughs> or they might be, you know, courtiers in Italy or whatever. But he's, yeah, he writes about jealousy or fear or, you know, all these things that don't change and will never change. Yeah. Um, and men just to describe them in ways that, that, just last forever like um because anyone anyone could say that character was jealous but the way that he manages to convey it is i mean we're hardly you know reinventing the wheel here by saying um, yeah. we in fact are reinventing the wheel by saying that shakespeare is good but but it's worth saying that um particularly perhaps in his tragedies he can show how individual weaknesses lead to downfalls yeah um and I don't, th- and he's not doing it in a moralistic way, particularly in a sort of, you know, cautionary tale sort of way, even though they do also function as cautionary tales. Um, yeah, I think that's what's actually really nice about Shakespeare is that he doesn't moralise at all. Yeah, something like Othello, you can say none of this would have happened if you weren't jealous, but it's not like. There's that's a it, you scene... have with it. Yeah, and there's not a scene at the end where. Well, I guess there is a scene at the end where, where he um, apologises, but it's not like you don't feel like someone's going to tell you and say, now go and do behave differently and this won't happen yeah. to you. Um, what, about, what about you? What's your favourite? Well, my favourite um, is Much Ado About Nothing. Oh, I do love that play. Which I adore. I've, I, so I did it at school um, and then and subsequently have seen many different versions of it. Um, including an excellent version with Tamsin Gregg playing Beatrice, which was not wonderful. Bizarrely set during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but you know, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they have their reasons. It does annoy me when, when Shakespeare plays are unnecessarily set in a time and place that they were not set, because obviously you're not going to change the words, and it just means you've got weird costumes and set. Stop yeah. it, people. <laughs> anyway, um, I think the, the reason I love that one most is basically and it sounds much less profound than all the things he said. It's just how funny it is. <laughs> um, the repartee between um, Beatrice and Benedict, particularly in the opening scenes, is is just glorious. You know, I, I just love people being sassy to each other. I love the wit. It's, um, it is very funny. It's just wonderful. Um, and real, really rich and interesting part for a woman as well. Um, I think... Some f- I'm going to make generalizations here. Maybe some of the... No, I didn't try... No, what am I trying to say? Around that time, I'm not sure how many um, just wise and witty women there were on stage. You've got... You've got I mean, obviously, played by men at the time, but still. <laughs> um, you've got, obviously, great characters like Lady Macbeth, which are just still known as the, the parts that all actors want to play at some point. But, like, that... So maybe it's not in contrast to tragedies. I, I just like how Shakespeare, in general, will give men and women equally interesting um oh, yeah. characters and you know they're the equal of each other yeah um even if as i say would all be played by men but <laughs> yeah he had foresight he knew that one day women would play by <laughs> Did. um 
My problem with Much Ado, despite me, although I love it, is the problem I have with a few of the comedies, is that there always has to be that crowd-pleasing extra set of characters who come in and, you know, either slapstick or yeah. just terrible comedy. And in that one, it's Dogsbury and Verges, who I find very tedious. Yeah. Um, I have seen one production, it was actually a student production, but um, that was the one I've seen where they were interesting and enjoyable and funny. And all the other projects I've seen, it's just like, oh, can't wait for them to get off stage. <laughs> um, as they have their sort of knockabout comedy about being taken prisoner or something. I don't know. Don't, not interested. <laughs> get back to the main part. Yeah, I think some of those um, kind of light, light comedy inserts to sort of lift the tone and make you laugh are... I do. Those are the bits I often have trouble with because I do think those are the parts that have dated, and it's very difficult to unpick all of the language and get, explain the jokes. And then often you think, well, I've I've spent so long working out what this means, and then <laughs> it's actually still not that funny. Um, and it's it just does feel unnecessary. I think. I th- oh, sorry. Wait, carry on. I was going to say, I agree, agree maybe dated, but also possibly maybe just annoying at the time for people who weren't, because, because he was putting on this place for all types yes. of people and all levels of class and intellect and everything. Um, there was that, that part of the audience who wanted to see, you know, pratfalls. Um, whereas I think even at the time, people may have been like, oh, dogs being bird, just get off. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, and there's like that scene in Macbeth where there's the drunk porter and he goes on for ages about being drunk and all the hilarious things he's done. I'm like, come on! No one wants this. No one. (laughs) 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 Um, And I definitely have less of a fondness for early comedies than I do for later comedies. Um, Something like the comedy of errors, where it's just constantly twins talking to twins and not... Like a, a quick conversation with sort of all I have. I mean, I'm I'm wiping away all of fast with that line, but um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I find the middle and late comedies, or middle, the middle comedies and the late romances, um, a great mix of the wit as well as the poignancy. Like, there's a lot of especially to go back to much to do. There's not only the relationship between Claudia and Hero, there's also both of themselves, where it's more there's more weight to it than in the early comedies. Like, I can't imagine anyone watching. As you like it and really caring whether or not they get together at the end. No, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps you will do. And I think a lot of those early comedies as well are very reliant on the whole like cross dressing, mixed identities, twins no. being, yeah. you know, and I'm like, oh, come on, seriously. Like, how could people not notice you're the same person? Yeah. <laughs> you're wearing a small you hat. You just got a dress on, that's all you did. <laughs> so it's. It's kind of those things I find really frustrating. But what I love about um, Much Ado About Nothing as well as a comedy is that it's it's so nearly a tragedy um, mm, and it mm. all just brings it together right at the end. And you do feel that sense of tension and excitement. It's not a comedy in such you sit there rolling around the whole way through. It's it's very much a, um, a tense, on the edge of your seat part, especially with Hero and you think, oh no, what's going to happen with her? And um, what's his name? Her lover, who's an idiot. Claudio. Claudio. I mean, that I get so cross every time I read it or watch it. But I'm like, how can you just believe everything you're told like that? Um, yes. <laughs> and you get so you get really frustrated, and you do care very much, and it is almost like, oh, I remember the first time I read it, I was like, oh, oh how could this be a comedy? Like, this is awful. Um, and <laughs> you really feel like you're not sure if everything's going to be okay, and that's what makes it really successful. Whereas something with a Midsummer Night's Dream, 
which you know is classic year seven because uh, <laughs> it's easy and it's got fairies in it and um the kids get to wear fairy wings and run around with things um they do in my classroom anyway <laughs> but, um, it's kind of you kind of know the whole way through everything's gonna be fine and it's just a bit silly and it's you know got fairies so it's feel <laughs> involved in the same way that the, with the more human comedies that that come later um but I think for me, the tragedies are more interesting in that they they do probe those more dark and complex elements of humanity. Um, and I think there's more scope for very realistic characterization. Though I have to say, the one tragedy that drives me insane is Othello because he has goes from perfectly normal person to insane within like a scene. um yes i well i do love a fellow but i can definitely see what you mean although not quite as bizarre as hamlet's pretends to be insane therefore becomes insane um trajectory (laughs) i think you've missed a step there will um yes i think whether or not it's comedy or tragedy you sometimes do have to suspend a bit of um, disbelief which is strange given how nuanced Obviously, his understanding of human nature is otherwise. I guess it's that meeting of human nature and the theatricality of having to have something, you know, in two or three hours on stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I think you're, you're right that the tragedies offer a greater opportunity for really delving into um, a particular human psyche. And, I mean, it feels plainly ridiculous to be talking about how good something like Hamlet is. We know Hamlet's great. We know that it's a psychologically fascinating play. Um, I guess if I had to, you know, if I'm sitting there thinking, what should I go and see at the theatre? I just, I find tra- watching a tragedy quite exhausting. <laughs> um, particularly if it's, um, well, I mean, something like Titus Andronicus with the amount of blood and just ridiculousness in that. I'm not sure I could bring myself to sit through it. Um, something like Othello, um, which I know, you know, relatively, well, I know that at various steps, I, I, I don't know, it'd be sort of a mix of really interesting to see it played out, but also frustrating and, I don't know, a comedy I can laugh every time, a tragedy, I'm not, uh, after the first time I've read or seen it, I'm not f- surprised by what happens, obviously. Right. And therefore, I think a lot of the power of his tragedies are seeing the incremental fall of a character because of what they are, you know, being told or what they're thinking. Yeah. Um, and I think the first time you read them, there can be these great surprises in them as they go on. Like, I remember when I uh, read Coriolanus, like, spoilers, um, his death at the end of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just this huge surprise, and now that's that wouldn't be the case. Whereas a comedy, you know they're going to get married at the end, really. Yeah. As you say, there's not much to spend. And I guess in a tragedy, you know that almost everyone's going to die, but but that one still came as a surprise to me. You don't know how they're going to die, that's true. You don't know how they're going to die, that's true. Or you don't know who's going to kill them, I guess, also important. Um, I think for me now, part of the pleasure of watching Shakespeare, and certainly when you know the stories, is seeing how differently actors handle the material. Yeah. Um, And... You know, I was really excited when the film of Macbeth came out last year with Michael Fassbender in it and um, Marianne Cotillard's Lady Macbeth. Um, but I was actually really disappointed by it. Oh, really? Because it did fail to bring out 
the complexities of, of Macbeth's character. He was just like, the same the whole way through. There was no change. There was no gradual um, no. disintegration. And that's something that Shakespeare is so good at in the tragedies is the gradual changes. Yeah. And I think you have to be a really good actor and also a very good director to be able to bring those out. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, certainly in class, we watched several different versions. Um, and, you know, I always show one that's been videoed from the theatre. Videoed? How old do I sound? <laughs> from the theatre. It's on daguerreotype. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> On an OHP. <laughs> so I, we look at one that's been like live streamed and then we'll look at one that's been filmed and then we might look at a, a sort of a couple of film versions. Um, and it's really interesting, again, how also directors, I know you've said that you don't like it when they do this, but I quite like it when they set it during a different time period that is relevant so that it pulls out different themes. So there's a really good Patrick Stewart version of Macbeth um, that is set during some kind of vague Stalinesque type. Uh, I'm getting impatient just hearing about it. <laughs> um, and it's really, really interesting because it brings out that sort of dictatorial um, role, but also it's all set in a bunker. And that uh, that um, feeling of being trapped and not being able to escape your fate is, is through the whole way through. Um, and it's really, really interesting. And that brought out those themes really strongly. And I thought that was an interesting interpretation. And they also had the witches as uh, nurses. Oh, that's quite interesting. Yeah, which I did think was very interesting. I think you'd enjoy that version, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah I think it's... I don't know. I, I, I think there can be really interesting things done with set, um, particularly if it's like a different type of space, like a bunker. I yeah. think it's just if I like, oh, this one's like the one I saw, like it's set in Cuba, so let's stick like an old motorcycle on, on stage and yeah, a bit of, you just, know. Yes. Yeah, just... I've seen the weird Much Do About Nothing with David Tennant and Chris, oh, what's her name? Um, Catherine Tate. Tate. Um, no. It was very odd. Like it was kind of set in the modern day and it was like in a disco and it was just, a, <laughs> it like didn't work at all. I think that's again one of the problems with maybe particularly comedies, I'm not sure, um, of setting them in modern day is that some of the foibles just won't ring true anymore. Like um, Taming of the Shrew, for example, is a really interesting play. I mean, obviously, as 10 Things I Hate About You, but also in in general, because um, it's no longer that important that the oldest daughter gets married first, um, um, it's just... Yeah, the, when the premise of the play is um, not going to necessarily be communicated to an audience. And indeed, I think Tenet Street is really interesting because um, of the way that um, women's rights have changed over the, end, over the centuries since then, and the way in which gender is perceived. Um, I saw an all-male version of it that was an interesting way to do it, um, which... It didn't feel too gimmicky because it felt like it felt the right sort of place to do that too because you it made you think more about them as I don't think more about them as characters or made you realise how more how ridiculous it is because sometimes I think if you see someone in Shakespearean costume you you don't obviously don't agree with the morals of the time but your 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 mind's just sent straight back to thinking yes that's that's what they'd have thought yeah. whereas seeing it with an all male cast made it more of a jolt I guess when you saw how badly. Catherine was mistreated because you couldn't just think, oh, it's Shakespearean times. That's normal. Yeah. If you see what I mean. 
But yeah, I do think that those sorts of more modern ones are good because it encourages you to make the links between your society and, and Shakespearean society. Um, but I just, yeah, I mean, I do like, I do really like the comedies and I do find them really good fun to, to watch. But I think, I think it's the thing is for me is the difference between watching and studying and like okay. thinking about the ideas. I prefer to study and think about tragedies, but in terms of watching at the theatre, I prefer watching comedies. But then that's just me in general. I don't like watching sad films, but I don't <laughs> like watching sad stuff because I go, I watch stuff to be entertained and to enjoy myself and to walk away thinking like, oh, that's nice. I don't like walking away with floods of tears. Like I've been, I kind of sometimes I do, you know, when you're in the mood to cry, like that's fine. But if I'm going, most of the time I watch something because I want to be. Um, Take it away from the, my personal circumstances or whatever and, you know, feel that there's hope and joy in the world. And you definitely don't feel that by the end of Macbeth. <laughs> um, I think the only Shakespeare play that's made me cry was, um, I, I did only see it, um, it was one of those plays I do straight to a cinema, was The Winter's Tale, uh, Last Christmas, Judy Dench, oh. amazing. Um, but I like your, yeah, your distinction there between reading and watching because I think you're right that, um, I think there's a lot to get out of reading a tragedy because I want to read the same bits over and over again and really get into what's happening. Whereas a comedy so much depends on comic timing and, yeah. you know, the quick, quick witted back and forth between characters. Um, and you can skip over dogs being verges <laughs> um, when you're reading, but you so, so it's, um, I don't know. I've just defeated my own argument there, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> Even so, if the actors are good, the slapstick bits can be funny. But yes. If, if it's well directed. Well, Reading them is boring. Yes, particularly those sections. Um, yeah, sorry, those sections particularly. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, with apologies to Maddie, who tweeted me about um, the fact that I commented that no one likes it, the history's best <laughs> last time. Some people like the history's best. I'm sure they do, Maddie, but we're not going to talk about them at all today. <laughs> no. I think we have come probably, because we, we talked quite a long time. Um, which one would you pick, Rachel? Tragedies. You just you sound like a steps tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> I would pick uh comedies, I think. Um just because I feel like there's still quite a lot of depth to them and also they're just really funny. <laughs> um I'm not always in the mood for a tragedy, I think I'm probably always in the mood for a, a much do about nothing. Oh. Whew, there you go. Oh. Um, I feel like we've been unexpectedly erudite in our topic, if not necessarily our insights. <laughs> um, do you feel you can hold your head up high at school? Yeah, I've talked about stuff that's, you know, academic. Academic. Yeah. Um, right. the, well, the books for next time are less academic, but still certainly very literary. We will be um, pitting... Howard Zen is on the Landing by Susan Hill against 84 Charing Cross Road by Helen Hanth, which I'm very excited about because I love both those books. And I definitely don't, so this is going to make for a very interesting discussion. Can not wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool, until next time, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.